Hey, welcome to the Extra Podcast. My name's Daniel, and I'm here to run the, the nice, soft table with Greg Harris. Hello. Paul Siemens. Hey, everybody. And our American July 4th friend. It is July 4th, and that's, and that's what we're doing. My name is Jeff, and I am an American. And you're proud. I think I'm only American in the room right now. an American. Well, at least I know I'm free. Mm. Not like you guys. The snow Mexicans living, <laughs> living under the, <laughs> living under the. Okay, so you have to tell people where you get that. That's a. That's apparently not. That, Jeff that came language in here claiming, was attributed. That language is attributed to Donald Trump. President and he apparently did not say that. President, but uh, it's it is funny and probably very believable that perhaps he he would have at some point. He keeps having a go at all the. My my president keeps having a go at all the all of the. Uh, News media outlets, for whatever reason, he just tweets like late at night. So Snopes.com said that that was a false yeah. article. That it was, it's a false, it's fake. He did news not actually that say Donald it. Trump said that he yeah. did not say that Canadians should be called Snowmakes. Exactly, <laughs> of course he did. It was which, a meme, which I kind of wish he did. <laughs> but it's funny how you kind of like. Usually, if something like that came out, you'd be thinking. No way. But with Donald Trump, you're like, um, and it's me. And it's all lowercase. <laughs> maybe. He's it's one of my favorite parts of his tweets. But it is July 4th today. So, uh, yeah, you, the Canadians, uh, all you fair folks got to celebrate Canada Day a few days ago. And uh, I had to go watch baseball on Canada Day, which I was mm. told by other Canadians was a very non-Canadian thing to do. Mm. But I, they, they did play the national anthem at the beginning, although there was no flag anywhere nearby. So it was a little bit weird. Was but it a national anthem if there's no flag? There was no flag, yeah. So does it count? I don't know. So And then the US today, I have to go and get my get um, the fireworks, so So July fourth though, in your life, is also known as Jeff Eve. Yeah. <laughs> it's that my birthday is on July fifth, yeah. So when I was a kid I used to oh. think that they were celebrating my birthday in an act of early <laughs> narcissism. <laughs> I th- I did. I thought that everybody was like, "Man, people love me." So we we have some very uh, fireworks over the space needle. For generous me. listeners, very kind people. What what does Jeff Bucknam want for his birthday? What's you on know, the birthday I, list? I don't know. I, I my wife asked me that earlier mm. this week. What do you want for your birthday? I was like, I I don't. You, know, you get to a point. I'm 45 years old this year. You get to a point where you're like, I don't, I don't have any idea. There's nothing that I. I'm thinking my life would be appreciably better with that because you get old enough to say that stuff that you think you'd like, you just think about all the work it would require. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Sure. Mm-hmm. I know guys, I want to know guys my age who go out and they'll buy a boat or something. And then I, I, I think, oh, that would be awful because then I'd have to clean it and you'd have to take you'd it in and out of the water. Yeah. And then every time something broke on it, you'd be like, why do I own this dumb boat? So, so I was out this past weekend at the lake. Um, and there was, I overheard a conversation between some kids on the, the playground. I was on the playground with Benji and, and one of the kids was saying, Oh, your dad has a new boat. That's so fun. And we're going to get to go water skiing. And the other kid said, yeah, the problem is, is that our old boat was actually fun because it wasn't very nice. And so dad was fine, like bringing it places. And mm-hmm. if it got scratched and dinged up, it wasn't a big deal. And we could do stuff and we could plan it. And he's like the new boat, dad doesn't really let me go near the new boat. And dad's always checking to see if the new boat is rubbing up against wood in the lake and stuff. Mm-hmm. And dad's, dad's not very nice with the new boat. <laughs> so right. I was like, that's, that's actually quite a funny little, yeah. I'm sure many of the, the kids of the new boat owners 
Don't touch hey, that. That's right, man. It's for your fun. Well, look, Mike, I have a I have a new car that I was had to buy, and I don't want my kids eating in it. <laughs> right. I don't want them to ruin it. The last one they ruined. Right. Because they eat everything in it. But and this one has a chance. The other one, which is like the, the van barf mobile, it's mm. horrible. It's got is stuff it? on the carpet that I don't even know. It's past the point of no return. Dents all over it. But look, if any, it's a really good car. If anyone is interested in buying. <laughs> <it>. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that's the way it works. That's why you should always re- remember that before you buy brand new stuff, because you think, oh dear, it's gonna get broken. It is. It's gonna get broke, mm-hmm. and that's why I, I don't want anything new mm. for my birthday. So All my needs are met. Have you have you guys seen the uh, this app called Let Go? No, it's like a Craigslist, but it's it's free and you take a picture of something and then people can comment and say they want to buy it. And it's, it's basically a Craigslist on an app. One of the things that surprised me about the let go app is how many used pairs of shoes people post. Would, would you buy you used shoes? How I long bought, have you had this app? About two weeks. I bought are you a just lot taking of our, pictures of stuff where you go? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So now I'm trying to sell stuff that doesn't even belong to me. No, so I bought a... Yeah, yeah, that's it. Uh, Greg, are you trying to sell those red shoes that you had? No, I'm not. Those things are not going anywhere. Um, I haven't seen you wear them in a while. I bought the uh, the bike rack off Let Go okay. for our family. A little Thule bike rack. Oh, I like those. Yeah. It's called Thule, though. But anyway, that's fine. Okay, well, sorry. It sounds like... If you say Thule, doesn't it sound better? It yeah. feels almost like you should be calling it Thule because that's, that's but more Thule. right. Okay. Yeah, I think it's so right. you're saying all this stuff's free? No, no, you buy it. What? But it, it's, anyways, my point was with the Let Go app was how many pairs of used shoes were on there. Because you said you don't want anything new, which made me think about what would I buy Jeff I used think, that I, I could find on Let Go. And I then actually, I thought used shoes. I think shoes would probably be something I'd buy new. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So Greg, why is this? Yeah, there's some used shoes. Right. The sandals. Toddlers, brown and white sandals. Do people just go around and take pictures of brown stuff around their house? Brown and pink, accent, flat sandals. Let go. Okay, well, I might give it a try. I don't know what the point, why Why don't we just use Craigslist? Take a picture of my it's dog. It's fine, it's just, this is all like, take a picture based of on the app, so all the messages go through the app and everything, you don't have to sync it up with your email. With we should your walk around the church uh, and take pictures of stuff. Yeah. That's great. Look, I'll take a picture of Daniel right now and list him. Well, I was going to list you. Okay, well, Somebody selling some funny. old wooden tennis rackets for 50 bucks. Yeah, see, that's a good, good deal. <laughs> 50 bucks. <laughs> they're right. they're not going to make their money on that. No. Well, this has been great, guys. And I'm sure Paul has spent a lot of time on there later. You know, speak. we talked about America. and We've been talking about, you know, July 4th. And I thought I'd bring up an American hero because we, uh, we have a question here regarding one of them. Is it the greatest American hero? It could be. Who's that? Did Who any that? of you guys see? He's walking on air, believe it or not. Believe it or not. Did you guys, any of you guys see... Uh, George isn't at home. <laughs> the movie Hacksaw Ridge? Yes. I did not I just, see Hacksaw Ridge. just watched it. You just watched it? Two nights ago. Yes. Okay. Paul, what is it about? What's Hacksaw Ridge about? Hacksaw Ridge is about a gentleman for- by the name of Desmond Doss. Desmond Doss was a... Uh, or, yeah, he passed away a few years ago, but he is a... Um, there was a Seventh-day Adventist who wanted to join the war effort in World War II, but uh, didn't want to bear arms because he's a pacifist. So he he enlisted and everything, and he had to go through all sorts of trials uh, as a medic uh, in World War II. And uh, it's quite the story. It's pretty great. It's, a, it's Very gory, though, I'll say. The goriest movie I've ever seen. 
an excuse really for pacifists to watch a war movie and feel justified about it. There you go. Because they get to see all the blood and guts, but have all of the self good good feelings of saying, see, I like watching all that gore. I just don't have to be a part of it. I'm and I count myself among them in my critique. But it's one of those it's one of those things where you you have a movie done like this. Mel Gibson is the director. He's not scared of showing showing gore, <laughs> as we know from Braveheart and uh, other movies. Apocalypto. Apocalypto. Yeah. He really was one. the director. Wasn't that up for the best picture? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was up for best actor, too, I think. Well, he's not in it. He's not in. Actor. No, no, not. I mean, uh, Desmond Doss, Andrew Garfield. Oh, oh yeah. Spider-Man. Because he was up for silence no. and oh, okay. or potentially up for both. I anyway, so the movie is uh, very well done. And the only thing that earns its R rating is the is the gore factor. Language is very mild. There's no sex. Mm. Uh, yeah. So, so one of the probably the best war movie I've ever seen. There you go. Well, there's a question regarding that, and it's about Seventh Day Adventists. Seventh Day Adventists. Yeah. And the question is, are they Christian? Uh-huh. And what would make us different than them? Like, are they a cult? Because they, you know, they take to their religious things so extremely they're not going to fight. But at the same time, don't we have Mennonite, Mennonite Brethren has a, a, a tradition of pacifism? Yeah. It, um, anything to do with their stance on war wouldn't be classifying them, them as a cult. Um, so there used to be a, an apologist um, by the name of Walter. Oh, what was his name? Wink? No, he did uh, Kingdom of the Cults. Yeah. Remember him? I do. And I can't remember his last name. Anyway, he did... He was a good guy. He, he passed away in the late 80s. Um, can't remember his last name. But anyway, he did a investigation into them. He came out saying that he didn't think they were a cult because um, they still held to Jesus Christ being son of God. Like they, they can stand by the Apostles' Creed. They can stand by the Nicene Creed. It's Walter Martin. Walter Martin, thank you. Um, but what happened with the Seventh-day Adventists, they had somebody by the name of Ellen G. White, I believe was her name, was who was a, the lady who was essentially in charge of the, or the head of the Seventh-day Adventist church throughout the 20th century, for, for the most part. And she had a lot of teachings that were off and leading them down all sorts of different paths. But apparently a number of the churches didn't really follow her, and now some of them uh, most have gone away from it, so I, that's a, that's about all I know. So, hmm. yeah, are would we consider them a cult? I, I I've met some Seventh Day Adventists who are very um, evangelical in the way that they talk and talk about Jesus. So I so on, on the Gospel Coalition's website, which is a very helpful like resource center in all honesty, providing lots and lots of uh, resources and information regarding all sorts of stuff, cultural, theological, other other things. Um, they actually have a, an article called Nine Things You Should Know About the Seventh-day Adventism. In fact, Joe Carter, he writes a lot of these nine things you should know about whatever. Yeah. I'm going to recommend that. You could just go to the Gospel Coalition's website, so thegospelcoalition.org, and if you do a search for nine things you should know about Seventh-day Adventism, you can read his stuff. He knows far more about it than we do. Um, after making that reference, let, let me, I, I do want to be careful. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people want to ask, uh, I've been asked this before uh, from people, uh, is such and such a cult? Is such and such false this? Is such and such? Mm-hmm. 
whenever you're dealing with a religion uh, or a religious tradition that kind of roots itself in what they would call historic Christianity, whether or not they are or aren't, you know, so Roman Catholicism or uh, Mormonism or some of these others. And I'll, listen, please, I don't put Roman Catholics and Mormons the Mormon church on the same standing in terms of how close they are to Orthodox doctrine. Mm. But what I'm saying is that inside of these churches probably exists faithful Christians. Uh, but they have to, in order for them to be faithful Christians, they have to be so in opposition to the beliefs of their church. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Likewise, I think there are people who go to faithful churches that are not Christians and they have to be not faithful in opposition to their faithful church. Do you, do you see what I mean? So there's a difference between the actual person that you're speaking to might say there, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist or I'm a, uh, I'm a Roman Catholic or whatever, and Seventh-day Adventism or Roman Catholicism. So I always want to be really careful. You know, we really should have the respect for people to let, let them explain to us what they believe. We don't live in a day where everyone adheres to whatever the teachers who are teaching them tell them to adhere to. It's not, I mean, Roman Catholicism in ages past, you, in order to be a true Roman Catholic, you had to agree with the church at every point. If you did not, you were a Protestant. That's by definition, right? Right. But nowadays that's not the case. We, we really do, our, our theological beliefs tend to be very similar to buffet where we pick and choose stuff that we like and don't like. We do that from Roman Catholic. I know Mormons who do that. I know, uh, I know, I know Protestants who do that and others. Um, so you have to, you know, you, you have to hear somebody out regarding what it is that they believe and compare it to what the scriptures teach and then ask questions based, based upon that. But if you ask a question like, well, what is a, what does the Roman Catholicism teach? Well, that's a different question. We can deal with that because the, because we have the Vatican II, we have, uh, historically the council of Trent, we have lots of different things that we can look at it kind of like you'd look at a cadaver, right? Mm. And make judgments based upon that. So I'm always a little bit wary when someone asks a question about, oh, is this a culture or whatever? Because I sometimes think that their definition of cult needs to be sorted out. Like, what is that? What is a cult? Yeah. So anyway, I think that that article, Gospel Coalition, will actually help you a lot because it'll at least give you a primer. We call it primer. It's the beginning stages of studying something, and it gives him probably some references to other places you can do some reading. And I don't think, I mean, I'm not getting the sense that any of us around the table feel particularly well nope. equipped to deal with Seventh-day Adventism no. in their beliefs and to speak authoritatively about it. So we'll punt it. Thus the reference. We'll punt it to Joe Carter and the... Gospel Coalition. Not sure. Joe Carter, who hit the home run for the Blue Jays, though. Different guy. Yeah, definitely a different guy. The last great days of the Blue Jays. 90, oh early goodness. 90s? Four. No, it was 92, 93, I think. Okay, earlier than that. Yeah. Because it was 20 years since they... Daniel, were you alive then? No. It was not. <clears throat> 94. So I never got so to see... So the Blue Jays have been as... Has been, have been relevant in your lifetime for the same amount of time as the Mariners have been relevant in mine. Yeah. Yeah. Which means never. <laughs> okay. Nice. Here's a question for you, Greg. Oh, okay. Is it possible for a non-Christian to say Jesus is Lord? <laughs> uh, there's a few verses rattling around in my head. To yep. say it? Yes. Absolutely. You can say it. It's yep. an easy question. Yes. 
Well, they're that's what's what the passage mean, of the uh, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. Yeah. Um, so there's a context to that yep. text as well. So if if it's by Jesus is Lord, if we if by that we mean making a confession of faith, as in this is something that I believe to be true, then I would say no. It's First Corinthians. 20. Non-believers don't say that. Really. To say, I believe this to be true. What about somebody who starts in the faith and then doesn't finish? Hmm. Would, then would they still be saying Jesus is Lord? Well, I think at one point in their life, perhaps they might have said Jesus is Lord. They didn't continue in it. Now that gets in, yeah, that's into fair. a debate about yeah, yeah. whether or not they lost something or never had it to begin with. Yep. And we're not, I'm not addressing that question. Okay. I'm not saying they lost it, their mm-hmm. faith. I'm not mm-hmm. saying they, that, or, or I'm not saying they, they never had it. That's a debate we want to have, but mm-hmm. it is possible for somebody to, to, profess some sort of faith in Jesus, mm-hmm. even one that sounds authentic, but not finish the race and thereby prove that it wasn't real to begin with or that they, they are no longer a Christian. Right. Right. But the statement of confession of faith, well, it depends on what view you hold, what view you hold on it, that it would have been what the argument I'm trying to make is that Jesus is Lord is one of the foundational confessional statements that someone makes as a believer. Okay, but you say to me, Lord, Lord. Right. And you so don't that, do what I say. So that's the other the other contrasting of the two verses rattling out of my head when you ask the question. The other one's first Corinthians twelve is what you're thinking about. So right. first Corinthians twelve, uh one to three says Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So we're taking, I mean, you have to deal with the question there. It seems that Paul's arguing that that the only way that someone actually makes a, an authentic profession of faith mm-hmm. is by the power of the Holy Spirit right. to do it. Uh, but there are other passages of Scripture that are going to inform now mm-hmm. what an authentic expression of faith looks like and how long it lasts and those sorts of things. So this is not the only text that deals with... But how much... Is this a text where we have to look at the historical context the no, fact I that I think it's we should avoid all of those <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah absolutely because saying Jesus is Lord in the Roman Empire right uh, would mean that you wouldn't be saying Caesar is Lord right right so somebody to sit to go and say Jesus is Lord for a non-Christian to do that would I mean was not going to be good for them Christians were not treated well for saying Jesus is Lord so for a non-Christian to do that doesn't really makes sense. If the intention of the question is asking, can people say all kinds of things about their, what they believe to be true and yet have it not actually be true because they, <coughs> they prove otherwise by their lifestyle or by their whatever, then, then of course, yes, people can say they believe all kinds of things and yet prove by their affections and their actions and their attitudes that it actually is not, that confession is not true of who they are. Just all stuff that the Apostle Paul would agree with. Right. And does agree with in many different places. So so when you come to a passage like First Corinthians twelve, you need to understand that. That he's not he's not rejecting all that idea. He's speaking in a particular context regarding spiritual gifts here. Mm-hmm.
but yes, nobody says no. Nobody comes to faith in Jesus though, except apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Period. Yeah. Right. Awesome. So, so the awesome. so the validity of the profession will be proved over time, and eventually on the great day yeah. of judgment. But we have we can look at evidences in the current standing of people to say whether or not we see a, a trajectory of of growth and the fruit and in a lifestyle that would make sense for someone who says they're a Christian. Okay. So cool. I have another question then. Okay, what's your other question? Slightly related. Well I'm getting yep. there, Jeff. I'll get there. It is slightly related to um living as a Christian. And in fact it is related to that. It like how do we live as Christians in this world where we are you know, there's two sides pulling on us and we have to take stands on things. So for example, first Corinthians five eleven reads, I meant that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worships idols or is abusive or is a drunkard or cheats people. Do not even eat with such people. Hmm. And so the question is, you know, could you please clarify how this should be applied in our present culture? Yeah, I think that the reference to eating has to do with uh, communion, has to do, and and I'm saying that because this wi- the wider context here in First Corinthians five is uh, basically a case of well incest. You, so the first f- five verse one, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. So there's a, some debate about what that means. It, it might mean that the that the father and the mother that is a stepmother it might just be the mother like there's lots of debate about what this might be but it's considered at some form some form of incest and even the pagans think it's gross and then he continues and you're and you're proud shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this see that they think that because they're free in Jesus and because probably because they think that they're in the kingdom, the, in the, the Corinthians thought that because the kingdom of Jesus had already come, that they were like the angels. So it doesn't matter what you do with your body anymore, right? Because they're in this immaterial world already. The material is meaningless. So whatever I do with my body doesn't matter. And if so, if I join sexually with my mother-in-law or whatever, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's just my body. But Paul is saying, no, you guys should be, you should be, sad about this. You should be very upset about it instead, instead of being proud. So he says in verse three, for my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit as one who is present with you in this way. I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So this is like an apostolic work here, what he's done. I've, I've already passed the judgment on them. And then he's asking them to carry out basically the judgment that he's passed on them in the gathered assembly of the church. Verse four. So when you are assembled, And I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present. Hand this man, meaning the guy who's committing this sin, who you've been celebrating, hand him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What does that mean? Where's he supposed to go? Outside the church. Yeah, probably into the realm of where Satan has, has rule in this present time so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So you're supposed to do this kind of for a, it, it's a restorative procedure here. So you're, you're, you're pushing him outside of the church so that it clarifies for him that he's not, he's not in good standing with God 
because yeah. of this action. And that will chasten him so that he will end up coming back and saying, oh, my goodness, you're right. Yeah, okay. lead him to repentance. Right. Verse 6, then, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? What does that mean? Why is he talking about bread? Because the, the yeast will, will affect everything that it touches. Right. So this guy, if he stays in the church, it will end up basically tacitly approving of his actions and mm-hmm. the rest of the church will be affected by it. Right. Yeah. So sexual immorality, even though it's little right now, will end up becoming this huge deal that everybody thinks is okay. Verse seven, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened breast of sincerity and truth. So in other words, you guys are really Christian people now. You don't serve under the old forms. So be a new Christian community. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, I don't not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. That's an interesting mm-hmm. text. It's basically saying, look, you know, I'm not taking you to pull out of the world. Those aren't the people I'm talking about when I'm saying that don't associate with them. By the way, isn't it really interesting how people misunderstood Paul mm-hmm. in his first letter? His letter. It's like, I wrote this letter to you guys, took this to mean like everybody. And I don't mean everybody. I, of course, don't mean everybody. I mean the the Christians don't 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 associate sexually immoral professing Christians. But now verse 11 I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or slanderer or drunkard or swindler. Don't even eat with such people. So what does he mean what does he mean? <laughs> don't don't celebrate communion with them. Yeah. That you you need to se- you need to separate them somehow from the from the body. Yeah. What business is it of mine, verse twelve, to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. And then he finishes by quoting Old Testament: "Expel the wicked person from among you." So this is a church discipline text, mm. very much so. And so the the, the idea here is that that you you should there should be uh, guards in the local church against sexual immorality becoming uh, acceptable and that one of those guards is to expel the immoral brother from among you. Not for, not just because you're trying to protect the church, although that is the case. You're also trying to help the brother so that he knows that what he's doing is not not right. Hmm. So that he'll be saved in the day of the Lord, as it says. Hmm. Paul, you want to add anything? Um, what was it? The original question was how do we live... Uh, live this out in our culture is that right yeah it was how do we live this out in our culture today and i think one of the extension of that question too is what if it's someone in our family mm. but i think that was I, my my guess is the listener was emailing thinking it just means like yeah, spending food. time in community yeah no i wouldn't I, I don't think that's the case i think you can have a meal with somebody mm-hmm. uh the the idea i think the reference is it has to do and because of the context regarding the because of the context regarding the gathered assembly and, and what they used to do there at the end, they just expel the immortal brother from among you. That That's the idea. Yeah. It's, it's not a shunning like in that, I don't know, there's like some cultures around or some religious groups that shun, unshun, shun, mm. <laughs> that they will shun somebody. But that's not the idea. The idea is that you, there should be a mark 
uh, on them by the church to say, look, you're not because of your standing in Christ, you've been separated from the body of believers in a significant way and that we're going to bar you actually from taking communion here mm-hmm. because you're not okay. So when you're taking communion, that's basically what you're saying is that yeah. you're, you're rehearsing the gospel to yourself, a gospel that you're repudiating by your, your unwillingness to repent of mm-hmm. your sin. Yeah. And this is why when we, when we read uh, from first Corinthians 11, when we, administer communion we always give the warning for people who are living in unrepentant sin people who have wandered away from the lord if you aren't willing to repent and come back to the lord then abstain from the meal stay away from it because you are drinking and eating judgment on yourself is what the text this is really hard to apply in a large church it is just because it's very difficult for us and actually illegal for us to stand at the door and say you can't or whatever so the best way we can do it is to warn people beforehand and follow through the church discipline procedures that we have in place at the church. Yeah. In this case, I think it probably should be said though, because most churches don't, including ours, don't often follow through with this. Uh, a little leaven has leavened the whole lump. I mean, our, our sexual immorality in the church is pretty, uh, rank. Uh-huh. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. And so Paul's words have come true mm. here Yeah, at this point. And, uh, churches will probably continue, especially in these days where, you know, postmodernism and a kind of tolerance and a lack of knowledge about anything true, meaning that we're who knows what, what happened or whatever, and individualism, it will be very difficult for churches moving forward to actually embody this kind of community, um, which is a problem for the church in the end. You get lots and lots of people in the church who will think that they're Christians because they have made some profession at some point. That, but the church itself is not giving them any clear indication of whether or not that's true because they're unwilling to speak, to, to do something like this. Because that's why you're doing it. You're casting them out saying, listen, you're not, you are not part of God's people. Hmm. So you think you are, even though you're saying these words, you're not. It's part of the significance uh, in our context, at least at North Sea, about membership. Uh, that one of the questions we ask when some of these cases come up is, oh, is that person a member of our church or not, because that's one of the the avenues where we actually have an opportunity to say, hey, you know what, we actually think we're, as leaders, accountable to how, how we how we lead. And if we're if you're a member of our church and are living in unrepentant sin, and as leaders we just like let that slide because it's like super icky and uncomfortable to talk to you about it, that's actually really really bad shepherding mm-hmm. for the individual and for the rest of, of the church. And so that's why I want to, we actually encourage membership because it's us saying we want as leaders to be held accountable and we as leaders want to hold others accountable. And so without the structure of membership, we can't really pragmatically do it. Membership's not a, a word in the Bible, but it's a, it's a tool through which we can apply the, the church discipline uh, structures and, and instructions that we find in the in the scriptures. Yeah. Well, and, and the, so be a member. Well, and, and membership is a good thing. And like, it's not the accountability is not for just constantly shunning and throwing people out. It's about actually, you know, we want to restore you, mm. and and like we want the best for you. We want you to continue as a Christian. Right. Yeah. Paul gives the purpose of why you cast the person out of the church and not allow them to participate is so that there would be restoration, so that there would be. Uh, 
the what, what was the language of the text? You throw them out so that there would be the restoration of the of the spirit of the soul. What what I, f- I forget all so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. There you go. Mm-hmm. So you have the intended purpose and and goal behind discipline, which is always restoration. And I think um, in certain in certain cases, for instance, something that is blatantly outward. Um, sexually immoral. So if it's like a case of adultery that comes to light or um, or any kind of um, sex outside of marriage that comes to light, if that person's within a community group and living unrepentantly, that community group's going to be calling them to repent of that. And if they don't want to, they will be removed essentially from that group, probably by themselves. They'll probably pull themselves out because they're they're tired of being convicted of it. Mm. So, you know, it it will play out if if a person is really heavily involved in a church that this will play out like mm-hmm. they will. They might still attend on a Sunday morning or something, but this whole idea of them having continuing on in their life with their same community and everything just it won't be able to happen if they don't want to repent of that kind of sin. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's just how we work, right? Yeah community nice well we have time here those are good answers we have time here for one more quick question and it's this um who wrote the pentateuch in the sense because we often attribute it to moses is there other evidence thinking that it's from someone else uh for example um a period when israel was prisoner to babylon sure there's lots of in fact i think the majority opinion among most uh non-evangelical scholars these days is still some version of the JEPD theory or, Mm -hmm. and those letters come from, uh, the names of God that are used in it. So Jehovah, uh, Elohim, and then you have the Deuteronomist and the priestly source. So they Mm -hmm. think that there's different sources. So different people wrote. And so they divide it. So for example, the Jehovah and the, the Elohim writers say, well, God's name is Yahweh or Jehovah, right? And those, and when he wrote, he wrote saying that's God's name. And then this other author wrote and said, no, no, it's Elohim. And so whenever he wrote something, you can mark it by whatever Elohim is used. And the priestly source is something that has a lot to do with Leviticus and that sort of thing. So yeah, there's still a debate about it. That just so you know, that view didn't come up until the really past the Enlightenment. So the viewpoint of the church forever was Moses was the guy who either wrote all of it or assembled all of it mm-hmm. um, at some level or another. There is probably a little bit of evidence to suggest that there were some editing involved. There's no question. I, th- I think that everyone largely agrees that there's some level of editing going on there, meaning uh, the, the you know the gathering together of these things and um, some of the repetition that you find is as a result of that or Moses's death being talked about. Yeah. Stuff like that. And so you have additional pieces like that. Most evangelical scholars though, think Moses, they would still stand by the fact that Moses author authorship it really, there was no real reason to repudiate it yeah. or to think that it was bad. It's just the enlightenment kind of came along and everyone said, well, we should doubt everything we've ever thought about the Bible or its mm-hmm. authorship. Mm-hmm. So that's what, the, that's what they did. So I'm saying I don't personally buy into some of the, some of some of the doubting or the rationale for the doubting so i don't necessarily feel like i have to do anything with the jepd stuff and there's also good explanations for why you might use one name of god in one section mm-hmm. and another elohim tends to be the uh, tends to be a more generic name for god or the gods 
and Yahweh is the name of the Lord. So that I, you, and if you look in some passages, there's a specific reason why those words are used. And when Jesus refers to the Old Testament too, he talks about Moses and the prophets. Right. Right. So Jesus clearly thought that Moses had a pretty big part to play in the writing of the Pentateuch. So I, he's responsible for it on some significant level. So I think level. for us to go away from that wouldn't be. I mean, unless you want to say you know Correct. more than Jesus, which, by the way, most of the most <laughs> modern scholars have tried to say. I mean, what did he know? Or the, that right. when, G, when they said that, it wasn't actually Jesus speaking. It was just the the disciples who wanted to kind of add weight to their stories in yeah. Matthew or whatever. So yeah. it, there's a whole there's a whole kind of doubting, skeptical tradition that raises questions about everything in the Bible, like that. Uh, What's, what troubles me about it is a lot of young people grow up thinking, oh, well, Moses wrote it, and then they get to college, and some some secular scholar ends up saying, well, see, this majority of scholarship says this, and then they feel like, oh, I've been lied, the student feels like, I've been lied to all these years by my dumb pastors who don't know as much as the PhD who's standing in front of me, which is sad because oftentimes your pastor does know as much or more than the PhD in front of you, mm-hmm. and that PhD in front of you at your college, your secular university, isn't actually giving you both sides of that argument. He's not giving you some the the volumes of responses that evangelicals had have had over the years for this, and there are volumes of it. So if you're interested in it, there's lots and lots of books you can read, some Old, Old Testament theology and other things like that. You can email Greg Harris, <laughs> G Harris at Northview.org, and he will give you some of those. Awesome. And if you have any other questions, you can email extra at Northview.org. So you got G Harris at Northview.org and extra at Northview.org. And we will try and get some of those questions next time. Won't we, gentlemen? So much. We will so much try to get some of those questions. We're killing the questions, man. We are. You didn't ask anything about Proverbs. It's just too straightforward for you, huh? It's too straightforward. Too applicational. Mm hmm. I don't want to be told what to do. Exactly. Great. Well, thanks for listening. And uh, that is the end of this podcast. That was a horrible ending. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. We will see you next week. Is that better? Much. Do you like that one better? Sweet. Sweet.